0: This is a word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Storytelling is an art, but it's also a billion dollar business, one that's now at the center of conflict as the Hollywood writer strike drags on. How can the entertainment business write its way out of the stalemate? And what does that mean for creatives of color?
1: It almost feels like it's difficult to envision a future scenario in which everybody walks away happy.
0: The latest on The Writer's Strike coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
2: Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism.
0: We were really protesting our treatment on the field.
2: Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting
0: for what we deserve.
2: Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. For a lot of us, television and movies are more than entertainment. They've been an absolute lifeline in recent years with the pandemic and political instability and economic challenges have made the real world a really difficult place to be in. Now, real life economic worries are affecting the people who write some of our favorite movies and television shows. The Writers Guild of America, the union that represents screenwriters, has been on strike for several weeks, and some of the most important Hollywood locations are regularly surrounded by picket lines. This corporate greed has got to go! Hey, hey, ho, ho! This
1: corporate greed has got
2: to go! Hey, hey, ho, ho! This corporate greed has got to go!
0: But what's really at stake in this strike, and in particular for creatives of color? Join us to talk about it is Eric Haywood. He's a screenwriter, producer, and director, and you may have seen his work on shows like Power, Empire, and Law and & Order. He's a WGA board member and a part of the negotiating committee with the studios. Eric Haywood, welcome to A Word. Thanks for having me. Before we get to the strike itself, most people really don't understand what writers do. They think if you're in entertainment, they think if you're on TV, if they think if you write for a TV show that you must be rich. What's the average writer's life like?
1: Well, the the entertainment industry is not that different from, say, the sports industry in that the highest earners tend to get the most attention. And it sort of lends itself to this idea that everyone in the NBA is making what LeBron is making. And consequently, the general public can sometimes believe that you know whatever celebrity, screenwriter, or director or actor that they can think of who's become sort of a household name, a they obviously must be rich because they're famous, and people think that 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 fame and money kind of go hand in hand, and b they just uh, uh, sort of naturally then extend that logic to believe that anyone who works in that field must be making the same amount of money. Trust me when I say that not everybody in this industry is making what some of the household names uh, are making. And even when people hear some figures that get thrown around, you know, you may hear that a TV writer may average $5,000 a week and you say, oh my God, that is unbelievable. The part that people don't often understand a couple things. First of all, you probably have an agent, if not a manager, and possibly a lawyer. And in some cases, you may have a business manager. And each one of them gets a commission. So you're paying five percent to this person, ten percent to that person, another five percent to this person over here, off the top. You know, so you're, you're that five thousand dollar paycheck begins to dwindle pretty quickly. Of course, you know, like like everybody else, we pay taxes. But the bigger concern is you're not making that $5,000 a week, 52 weeks out of the year. In some cases, you may work 10 weeks and then not work again for another year and a half. In some cases, you may work 14 or 20 weeks and then you have to sort of like pound the pavement in a highly competitive field for your next job. And that money that you're making has to stretch you for as long as it possibly can. There are writers working in Hollywood who take on second jobs that are outside of the entertainment industry just to sustain themselves. So very talented people, because then the refrain is, well, if you were talented, then you would be able to work. Trust me, people are out here really, really, you know, especially in the last five to 10 years. For all of the opportunity that the shift to streaming movies and television sort of promised us, it really hasn't delivered.
0: What are the writers asking for? What were the the top three or four things that you guys were asking for? And what were the responses that weren't adequate from the studios you were negotiating with?
1: What the Writers Guild presented to the studios is what we call an interlocking series of proposals that honestly would probably take more time than you have for me to thoroughly get into. But let me just sort of like zoom out. If you're of a certain age, you probably remember a time when there were for the most part, just three broadcast networks. And and what those three broadcast networks did for the most part was create TV shows. And I'm just going to speak of television episodic writers for now. There was a time when those three broadcast networks, generally speaking, created TV shows that per season consisted of anywhere from 22 episodes a season, sometimes as as many as 25 episodes a season if the show was really, really popular. And what that did was for those shows, you would hire a team of writers who would come in and they would collaborate on the stories for that season and they would all write the various episodes. That is what you would call a season order. For a writer, what that did for you, it would take generally anywhere from nine to 10 months of steady employment to generate enough material to shoot a 22, 24 episode season. A lot of the shows that we're watching now are 10 episode seasons. So what that means is maybe you're working four months, or maybe you're working even as little as two months, and now you're scrambling for the next job.
0: But let's say... Eight, 10 years ago, you were writing for Everybody Loves Raymond, right? So you had your 22 episodes a season. If you wrote a particular episode, when that episode was rerun, the writer for that episode, he or she got an additional check. But what has happened with streaming and websites is now the network will say, well, we're not going to rerun the episode anymore. We're just going to put it on ABC.com or CBS.com or Hulu. So now the writers aren't getting the residuals. And they're saying, well, wait a minute, you're still making money off my content. You've just stuck it on a streamer. Elaborate a bit about how the the residual issue with streamers has also been a key thing that that writers are striking over.
1: Let me also uh, point out that that's not unique to writers. Uh, Those residuals you speak of also apply to actors. They also apply to directors and they also apply to producers. And basically we are all sort of collectively getting the shaft. When the shows would get rerun on broadcast television, they're supported by advertisers. The idea was when the network makes money, the the creatives who brought that material to life also participate in the success financially. Well, let me tell you, when you put it on a platform that is not supported by advertisers, What the network then says is, well, we're going to pay you a whole lot less. So that $10,000 residual check that you might have gotten years ago might now be $400. And then meanwhile, every time you go online or open a newspaper, you're seeing another story about the CEOs of these companies making $50 million dollars. $47 $47 million. In some cases, $200 million. It doesn't take a, an expert in the industry to recognize that if you're paying your CEO $50 million, you as, as the, the board of directors of that company, you're making a judgment call that this person is going to be leading us into a very bright financial future. So when the networks and the studios cry broke and they say, sorry, writers and actors and directors, we're going through some economic, you know, tough times. Look at all these people that we just laid off. But on the out of the other side of their mouth, what they're saying to their shareholders on their earnings calls. And this is all like public information. This is not like telling tales out of school. They're saying that the future looks very, very bright for us financially. And so when the writers and actors and other creative people say, well, where is our participation in this? And so you have to ask yourself, how bad must things be if people are willing to forego whatever meager paycheck they were getting to go on strike and not get paid at all because they feel like the future is that bleak that if we continue down this path, it's only going to get worse.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back more on the ongoing Hollywood writer strike. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned.
2: Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism.
0: We were really protesting our treatment on the field.
2: Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for
0: what we deserve.
2: Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about the Hollywood writer strike with writer and WGA board member Eric Haywood. So one of the concerns that people have that could be a major change to writing has to do with technology and artificial intelligence. One of the things that writers are legitimately concerned about is that down the road, studios will simply say, I want you to write a rom-com with Timothy Chalamet and Mark Wahlberg and have it take place in 70s Milwaukee. And so a chat GPT can produce that. Now, is it going to be good? No, of course not. It's, it's going to sound terrible. But the, the fear that the writers have is that studios will do that and then go to a writer and say, hey, punch this up. And I'm only going to pay you half of what I used to before because I'm going to claim that it's mostly written by AI. So what does the Writers Guild want? What do they want these studios to commit to doing and or not doing when it comes to AI moving forward?
1: Well, first of all, I think your hypothetical example is pretty spot on, except for the part where, they, where you say they will, they will pay the writer half. I I think I think a more realistic scenario is that the studio says we're going to pay you a fraction of what you normally would get paid if you had generated this material yourself, because in their minds, the computer, quote unquote, did all the heavy lifting. Not only are people sort of uh, uh, writers concerned about this technology sort of being the go to for studio executives, for producers or what have you. I don't think people are literally afraid of being replaced by machines, but what they will say is they will generate, give me, you know, my screenplay, my my rom-com, the computer spits it out, they go to the writer and say, okay, now here's the the first draft. And what we would like you to do, screenwriter, where we used to would pay you $100,000 for an original first draft of a screenplay, we're not going to pay you $5,000, take it or leave it. And just to get back to the to the union element of it, when you get paid for your writing services, a percentage of your earnings go um, into the health insurance fund. So it is dictated by how much you earn. If writers consistently uh, uh, get paid less and less and less then that's going to decimate the, the, the health insurance for the entire union. So that has nothing to do with what you see on your TV screens and in your in your movie theaters, but it is a, it is a, a very real sort of clear and present threat to writers. You know, it comes back to the income of it all. Uh, as far as the originality aspect, you know, a lot of people have, and I agree with this, a lot of people have, are starting to move away from even calling it artificial intelligence. It makes it sound like it's an actual thinking sort of machine and it makes it sound a little sexier and cooler than it really is. The term that I've heard used by writers more and more often to describe this technology is they're they're calling them plagiarism machines. There are legal ramifications to that. Like if you say to ChatGPT, "Give me a script in the style of Spike Lee," and the and ChatGPT scours the internet and finds every script of Spike's that's been uploaded to the internet over the years and it studies every movie that he's ever made and it spits out Malcolm X got a Habit, you know, being and, and, and now, and now the studio is like, we're gonna make this movie. It's like, well, you can't because it is you didn't hire somebody to sit down and generate an original idea. This software basically cherry picked existing copyrighted material, cobbled it together in a very seamless way, and gave you a first draft of Malcolm X Got a Habit. So now if you're Spike Lee, you're like, wait a minute. I've been cut out of the process by this software that has basically plagiarized my work. You know, in a nutshell, what the Writers Guild would would very much prefer is that the studios agree to not do this. And the studio's response was like, well, you know, we don't want to discuss it. We don't want to sacrifice what could be a very lucrative uh, opportunity for us down the road. It's one of the areas where negotiation sort of broke down.
0: Do you think that these studios are negotiating in good faith? And I give this example because technology is key. AI is sort of key in this regard. During the major writer strike that you had uh, at the beginning of uh, 2008, one of the big issues uh, from my understanding historically was streamers. At that point, Netflix was still sending DVDs to your house. You could still occasionally find any VHS somewhere. People might still have them in their homes. And the writers at that point were like, hey, maybe we should do something about this streaming thing. And many of the studios are like, oh, we're whew, streaming. We're not even thinking about that. We're still working on DVDs. And so the deal gets cut. And I think it was 48 hours after the strike ended in 2008, uh, they launched Hulu. So it was very clear that the streamers and the networks all along were planning on moving to the streaming model and they just lied about it. So looking at how you're negotiating today, do you think they're negotiating in good faith?
1: I can't make a judgment on whether or not they are uh, negotiating in good faith. They probably think they are, if I had to guess. But listen, to your point, I think one would be foolish to not look at the history. The studios basically said to the writers, the internet is new, we don't quite know what it is. We don't have to negotiate on this now. Let's kick the can down the road and we'll come back to it once we sort of see the full potential of what the Internet is. And for those who aren't aware, the big issue back then was that the Writers Guild wanted what we call jurisdiction over the Internet, over over, over what became streaming. Uh, we wanted to codify, you know, minimum pay and other areas that were already in place for broadcast television and for movies. We wanted to apply those things to, to the Internet, residuals and all of that and the studios were like, no, 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 don't don't be silly. Uh, The internet is probably, you know, not gonna amount to much of anything. And and fortunately, someone or several someones on the writer's side had the presence of mind to put their foot down and say, no, we believe this is gonna be the next big thing. We're gonna strike uh, if it means that we will not be allowed to have jurisdiction over the internet, and then we sort of won that battle. Uh, I think one would be foolish to not look back at that and at least assume conservatively, that history could be on the verge of repeating itself, because the response to the the AI plagiarism machine technology is very, very reminiscent of what they said about the internet back in 2007-2008.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back. More about the Hollywood Writer Strike with Eric Haywood. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the Hollywood Writer Strike with WGA board member and negotiating team member Eric Haywood. How specifically does this writer strike or things that you're negotiating for affect black writers? Because it isn't new that it is still an incredibly difficult industry for everybody.
1: For the rank and file black writer, it's always been tough. And unfortunately, the strike only exacerbates some of those problems. Um, one thing I can tell you is that the studios are not particularly interested in addressing this issue. You know, like they don't consider it their problem. And to a great extent, it does fall on the members of the Writers Guild to, you know, take care of our own and to clean up our own house and try to eliminate some of these barriers. But one of the challenges out of many I could name, a lot of black writers would encounter this problem where, okay, you work on the first season of a show as a staff writer. You prove yourself. The show wants to bring you back for season two. In theory, you are now entitled to a promotion, a title bump. A pay bump. Oftentimes, uh, most black writers will tell you of these horror stories where the the showrunner will say the the executive producer and the creator of the show and sometimes in conjunction with the studio or the network will say to the black writer, yeah, we would love to bring you back. We don't really have the budget to promote you. But would you mind repeating the same level of staff writer for the same pay? You know, for one more season, just one more, just one more. And and you're faced with this choice of do I take this basically insulting job offer or do I stand on principle and not work and not make anything? Or do I go look for a job elsewhere? Um, there is this sort of trap that a lot of r- black writers have been forced into where they're repeating some of those lower levels season after season after season. I myself was a mid-level writer uh, three times uh, in a row on three different shows. So when you're writing for television, in addition to your base weekly salary, let's say you get assigned to write an episode of a given season. That specific script comes with an additional paycheck for that, that, that episode script. When you're a staff writer, you don't get paid for those additional scripts. It's considered on-the-job training. It's kind of the unspoken thing is like, you should be happy to be here, So don't make waves. Be glad that your name is going to be on an episode of television that's going to air on TV. You're still going to get your, you know, minimal weekly paycheck. And it's been a a years long battle for the Writers Guild to get studios to agree to pay staff writers for their individual scripts, which once again happens to be the the, the lower end of the, the TV writing staffs. Is where a lot of black and brown writers tend to sort of get get stuck in that in that sort of whirlpool. So finally, after many 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 years of, of fighting this battle um, in this round of negotiations, we finally were succeeded in winning the concession that staff writers will get paid for their scripts.
0: In the last major writer strike that people will remember, it's two thousand and eight. Uh, There was this guy named Barack Obama running for president against this woman named Hillary Clinton. Desperate Housewives was still a hit show on the air. And so when the writer's strike happened, it was noticeable because shows we're still in the middle of their seasons and they just stopped, right? There was television that was gone. You know, you didn't have streamers back in 2008. Today, with so many consumers getting what they like from TikTok uh, and from YouTube and from Instagram and the fact that, you know, there's 100 million hours of content on Netflix and Hulu and Apple Plus and everything else like that. When do you think the public may start to notice this strike? Because I've noticed the WGA has been able to shut down production. There have been several movies and TV shows where the directors and some of the staff are like, hey, I don't want to cross the picket line. So they've they've stopped production on shows. But what do you think is that threshold? When it starts to hurt the studios, you know they're going to come back to the table. When is this going to start hurting?
1: It's hard to say. No, nobody can say for sure. But what I can tell you is that it's going to happen in waves and it's already begun happening because what everybody knows uh, who, who you know, sort of works in the business or, or follows it is that the first wave of shows to be impacted are the late night shows. Jimmy Kimmel, The Daily Show, SNL, all those shows went dark immediately because they're written literally almost daily. And they're produced, in some case daily, if not weekly. So without writers, there's nothing for you to do except put on reruns. Shows like Abbott Elementary, I think the, the audience, the, the, the general audience, is conditioned to expect new shows on broadcast networks in the fall. Those shows would be normally, they would be being written and filmed now so they can go through the whole editing process and be ready for the fall. They're not getting written now. So you may be used to your summer rerun. You may be watching Netflix or you may be watching, you know, Amazon Prime while you're waiting for the big Grey's Anatomy cliffhanger from the spring to be resolved in August or September. But that's not happening because those shows aren't being being written. You just don't know it yet. You know, uh, the, the showrunners of Stranger Things uh, came out. Speaking of Netflix, yes, Netflix has, you know, X amount of, of a catalog. To keep its subscribers happy. But you have now what is arguably your flagship show. The, the creators of that show very publicly said there will not be any more Stranger Things until the writer strike is resolved. We stand with our, with our guild. One of the concerns that a lot of people have, including some writers, is that well, a lot of these companies like Netflix and like you know, Disney Plus, they have tons and tons of content. They can withstand a strike for maybe longer than the writers can, can afford to be out on the picket line, but the way I see it is that if all Netflix needed to be a successful company was its back catalog, they wouldn't be making new shows. They wouldn't be making The Diplomat and Stranger Things and everything else. If they didn't need it, they wouldn't do it. So the idea that the pipeline is beginning to dry up at a certain point, it's going to have an impact. This is really one of the biggest weapons that a labor union like ours has. We don't just go on strike and, you know, go pick it a few times a week and then go home and pout. We consider this the next phase of our negotiation. So when people ask me, well, what are you guys doing? It's Like we're actually doing quite a bit. What I've seen and what I think we're gonna continue to see, once again, is these network CEOs they can't go out and publicly say with the whole world watching, you know, we're screwed because of this writer strike. You know, we got about three more months before, you know, it hits the fan. They can't say that. With the whole world watching, with Wall Street watching, they have to go out and say we are very well positioned for this strike. It doesn't affect us at all. At a certain point, you can only pull the wool over the audience's eyes for so long. There's no target date like the audience is going to get fed up on August 15th. Like, it's not that. It's like the fact that we don't know that drop dead date works to our advantage because it means the studios and, and the networks don't know it either, which is the the best way to apply pressure. We didn't just storm out in a huff and declare a strike. Um, we're waiting for them to come back to the negotiating table and to your earlier point, negotiating good faith. Because when there are a number of issues that they refuse to even engage on, well, we're not. We're, you're not ready to have a serious conversation.
0: Eric Haywood is an entertainment writer, director, and producer and a board member for the Writers Guild of America and part of the negotiation team. Eric Haywood, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thanks for joining me today on award. Thank you for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayanna Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's senior director of podcast operations. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of slate audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.